Romans chapter 16, uh, all aspects of worship are designed by God to draw us closer to Him and to His Word and to each other and to grow us in Christ's likeness. And whether it's your fellowship before or after a service, your song, music, preaching of God's Word, I hope all these things are opportunity to give back to the Lord through our offerings. All these things are designed to draw us to be more like our Savior. All these aspects prove to do that, then I would call that spiritual success. If you need a Bible to follow along with this morning, our ushers are standing in the back of you to slip up your hand. They'd be glad to give you one. If you maybe forgot yours at home or don't have the Bible on your device, on a device, they'll be glad to help you. Follow along with us in God's Word today. I want to read our text today, and then we'll pray. And then we'll work our way through these verses. For those of you who are guests this morning or are newer to grace, we try to go through one book of the Bible at a time in our morning and evening services. And uh, we're concluding this uh, letter of Paul to the church at Rome at this time. And we're in chapter 16, uh, journeying through this book the last couple years. And hopefully as we conclude it, it'll be just as helpful to you as when we started it. All right, let's read together and then we'll pray. Verse 17, Paul says here, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached out to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent and what is evil. For the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sospiter, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greet you. And Cordus, the brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, help us as we uh, go through this a brief text that's really about the protection of the health of a good church. Help us, Lord, to discern the wisdom that you give us here through the mind of Paul and the hand of his amanuensis to understand what the Spirit of God would have for us in relationship to protecting the spiritual health that we enjoy here at Grace. We look forward to how You'll assist us this morning in understanding this text and its significance to us by way of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to divide this brief passage up into three simple sections, and I would like to uh, verbalize these three portions, uh, all with the word protection in the description of each section. So I'd like to talk about, first of all, the disposition of protection, and then 
Number two, the position of protection. And thirdly, the realization. Disposition, position, realization. How does the church protect herself? As I stated in my prayer, and I've stated to you often through this two-year journey through this book, Paul is writing to a very healthy church. Uh, There's not one line of these 16 chapters that prescribe a way for this church to maintain their health. They're a healthy church. There's not much wrong with them at all. Paul finishes this letter unlike he finishes his other letters. There's two, there's two elements here within his writing that differ from his other letters. And the one that we deal with this morning how the church protects herself, you're not going to find in the way Paul closes his other letters. And what we'll look at next week as we conclude this book, you'll see a doxology, okay, in verses 25 to 27, and Paul does not conclude his other letters with a doxology either. We'll explain why he doesn't do that in his other letters as far as doxology or a hymn next week. But for today, we're going to talk about why he talks about a healthy church protecting itself, because a lot of the churches that Paul wrote to weren't necessarily healthy, and they had issues that they were dealing with that he had to directly address. Paul is writing a healthy church. And what he writes here in these verses that we've read is how to maintenance your health, how to protect it. When Paul uses very determined and graphic terminology here, it looks like maybe he's telling them to address an unbelieving element that's actually in their church, and he's not. But he is telling them inevitably there is going to be someone that's going to come along that's false, and who knows, it may have been among them at that time, but they needed to know how to protect health. And our whole culture is in that, isn't it? Boy, if you find a good diet that works for you, well, you want to protect the details of that diet. You want to remember it's bringing about good health for you. You have an exercise routine that's good for you. You want to maintain that exercise routine and protect its content for your own health whether it be a, an economic strategy for a country or for a corporation or whether it be a political or social strategy that's brought about some measure of success in our world that we live in. People like to take those formula and they like to hold on to them and protect them because it's been good for them. There's a, a way that your family functions that's, that's produced uh, good, solid love in your home and, and health and relationships in your home and and you remember back what caused that to come about, and you want to protect that with your life. We love to protect that which is good, that produces health. And Paul's doing the same thing here. Because the danger is always imminent. It's always imminent. So how do optimistic, joyful, 
healthy people continue to protect that which God's given them. He says here, dispositionally, the first part of verse 17, the disposition of protection. Now I urge you, brethren, now I urge you, brethren, the word urge here is just simply an invitation to come alongside of him and partner with him as brethren. He's, he's addressing those who are truly born again. And he's telling them this is not a lone ranger effort. In other words, you're not going to merely protect the church all by yourself, but we're going to do this together. As individual people who are walking with the Lord, as people who are walking with the Lord in your homes, as we gather together as a church, now let's come alongside each other. And this is the disposition of protection. Let's do this as a family. Healthy families love to work together to protect the spiritual good that God has brought to their company. As a pastor, that's, that's priority on my, my, my priority list is to protect the good, to, to, to honor the good, and to, to promote that which God is doing among us according to his word. I don't know if it's just part of the pastor-teacher gift or not, but when certain things or ideologies or people seek to upend, ruin, bring hurt to you as sheep of this flock, I have a tendency to get very defensive. I just want to protect and I almost want to protect as much as I want to protect my wife and my kids in our own home from intruders. I think it's just maybe part of the pastor-teacher gift, but the, I have the same passion to protect you as I do my own wife and my children, spiritually and physically. But I can't do it alone. <laughs> I call you alongside, brethren. And this is what we need to do. And the, the language here is simple and it's plain. So dispositionally, it's a disposition of grace and teamwork, camaraderie. It's obvious here. And what's the position that they take here? The second part of verse 17 Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So he's asking the Roman people with him, with each other, to take a stance on something. To take a firm stand, and the language here, as I said earlier, is clear and simple. This is not difficult to comprehend. But there's a position that we must take together because it's what we're experiencing as far as spiritual health is worth protecting. He says here, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. And this is not an option for anyone here. This is in the form of a command. Every healthy soul in the room must do this. We've got to keep an eye out. 
Each one of these phrases obviously has a grammatical origin, and if you don't have this tool in your library or in your an electronic format, I would encourage you to get it. It's just a Greek work that explains Greek words by Luo and Nida. And they say of all these words, these descriptions that I'll give to you, but I think they're the best resource that I can come across that really explains how the Roman ear and mind would have heard and understood what Paul's saying here. They said literally in this culture, this means take careful notice of those who cause divisions and upset people's faith. It's a mental process, they say, of paying attention in order to be prepared to respond appropriately. Keep your eye on. Those, it says here, who cause, who have it as their intention to make something be a reality that's not been our reality. We've enjoyed unity. They come in to destroy unity. To bring about dissensions. They love to divide. And why do they divide? The word dissensions here just simply means they divide in order for the purpose for those who are healthy, not just to be divided, but then to fight against each other. It's not like I want to come in and divide and then take a group with me. Other parts of Scripture scripture describe that sinful act of disunity, an intentional act of disunity. But these people, they come in to divide and then to get them to eat eat their own. We're going to find out who these people are in just a second, but we're finding out what they do first. They cause dissensions, and the text says here, hindrances. The root of the word hindrances here is where we get our English words scandal or scandalous. They cause offenses that are scandalous. They arouse opposition among God's people. I find it really interesting, words that are synonymous with this particular word are used positively in Scripture to demonstrate for us uh, the, the, the reality, the graphic reality of what false teachers try to do to cause hindrances among God's people. This word and other words similar to it are used in relationship to referring to the gospel being an offense. The gospel does divide, doesn't it? Only for good. These people divide each other to fight against each other for that which is wrong and unethical and certainly unscriptural. Scripture talks about Christ is crucified and that becomes an offense to the Jews. You can see the graphic division there in that text of how the gospel is an offense even to the religious person. It causes a divide only for good, only here these folks come in to those who have accepted the gospel and seek to divide them to contend against each other. Paul not only says that in 1 Corinthians 1 and tw- verse 23, but Galatians 5, 11, 
Uh, he speaks about the offense caused by preaching about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When we preach Christ in this auditorium, and when we preach Christ at a wedding, or we preach Christ as a, at a funeral, the message and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and salvation through Him alone offends people. Would you agree? How many of you remember the gospel being offensive to you when you first heard it? No one? Just a couple of you? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not very comfortable when you tell people that they can't get to heaven on their own through their good works or through their church or through mere religion. The gospel divides when you tell them it comes through Jesus Christ alone. It causes an offense. Those are several texts of how this word and other words synonymous are used in a positive way, but Paul's saying here, uh, these folks, these folks that we need to keep our eye on, they cause dissensions and hindrances among God's people. And it's contrary to the teaching which you've learned. Paul uses similar language like this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you want to cross-reference in the margin of your Bible to study on your own there later. He's always desiring people in multiple contexts to protect that which they've known. and That which has been real in their lives, spiritually. And it says here, and turn away from them. It does not say debate with them. It does not say argue with them. It does not say try to persuade them. It says, be prepared to turn away from them. This is hard language, isn't it? Uh, it's probably really hard language for those of you who are guests or newer to grace when we don't have the context of the whole book of Romans. But basically he's saying here, in summary for all of you who are newer to grace, that the content of the gospel has been preached and has been received and lives have been changed and we've been walking through what those changed lives look like from Romans chapter 12 to 16. And he says, anyone that's going to come in, and there will be those who will try to come in to change the content of that gospel, which caused the change in your life, anyone that comes in to influence and divide that good spiritual health, keep your eye on them, and then don't dialogue, don't debate, don't try to persuade there's nothing to dialogue. There's nothing to debate. You can't persuade them. It says just turn away. So that's not very loving. Well, it would not be loving if these folks had not heard the gospel. But these are folks that have heard the gospel. These are folks that have said that they've embraced the gospel and been changed by the gospel, only to show up later to say and to prove by the way they're speaking and the way they're living, they never really did. So these these people have not been unloved. They've been tremendously cared for. And when it comes to the health of the flock being uh, disrupted or hindered, he's saying, no, we've tried. We've done our best. Nope, now we're just going to turn away. And we're going we're to keep walking faithfully. So when anyone comes across our path as a church that seeks to dismantle the unity of the flock, that the Spirit of God has granted to us, this is what we are to do. The command here is quite simple. Turn away. There's nothing to argue about. 
The plain truth of the Word of God is prevailing truth, and it is to be learned and not argued. Paul would have been speaking here from experience. He was a religious zealot, wasn't he? The disunity of local flocks in Jerusalem would have been his goal before he knew Christ. And if he could not break them up, he would seek to destroy them and imprison them, all in the name of Jewish religion. But after Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, you don't see this man one time arguing truth anymore. There's no debate. But you sure see him giving his testimony of his conversion at every opportunity, and to the flock he seeks to do nothing but build her up and to seek her protection. I think the closest we get to Paul uh, with very clear, if you would, severe language, protecting the flock would have been Galatians. Right? Right? where there was already a group in that church that was preaching another gospel, and Paul doesn't debate with that group. He just comes out and says, you're accursed. Let's move on. (laughs) Don't be again entangled with those former religious things. You've been made free in Jesus Christ. Stop it. Let's go. Let's protect and let's move. Any time, folks, that you're sitting down and discipling someone, that you feel like you're always trying to have to, um, you're straining for unity, right? You're, you're, you're constantly trying to have to, uh, um, seem like being drawn into a debate or an argument or whatever, that person's not really interested in Bible truth, Okay? When someone's truly born again and they crave the milk of the word of God, they're just like little babies. You don't have to convince babies to eat. They just eat. Let's not make this rocket science. Debaters, arguers, are not growers. Okay? You know what it's like in your own home when you don't have the heart of your children. A lot of times there's debate and argumentation and they're not really with you, right? Proverbs 4, my son, give me your, my, give me your heart. <laughs> you know when you don't have your kid's heart. It's an agonizing time for a parent and it lends itself to you versus them. And, and Paul's saying, let's not make it a you versus them. This is what thus saith the Lord. And let's just do what the Bible says Amen. while we're governed by the fruit of the Spirit. Who indwells us. Okay? Again, the disposition and the position are are directly tied together here. We never forget the disposition while we live out these very clear protective words that Paul gives to us here. Again, the gospel and the truth of the word of God are nothing to be debated. They are by nature quick and alive and powerful and relevant. They just need to be read, taught, preached, and lived. If there is anyone in the church that seeks the disunity of the church, then that person is to be quieted by having their audience taken away. 
if they are to argue, debate, and to be an enemy of unity, they are to do it in really a self-incriminating soliloquy kind of way. <laughs> in other words, uh, let them argue with an audience of nobody or to an audience of nobody. Let them stand out like one alone in a wilderness who's lost their mind. That's what Paul's saying here. Let them there be not in earshot of nobody. Let them scream at the rooftop their religious insanities. And let them do it alone. Because in that alone time, they'll know that there is a healthy group of people that are no longer around them listening to them spout off their insanities and they'll notice something about those people. They're loving, they're joyful, they're peaceful, they're long-suffering, they're gentle, they're meek, they're self-controlled. All because they're governed by the Spirit. And even our disposition and our position remains a testimony to them who still may need to know Jesus Christ. So separation from these kind of people can actually be a gospel witness to these people. Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Would you flip over there with me real quickly? And again, to those of you who are newer, uh, this is going to maybe beg the question to you, but all I'm saying is we've been through this book for two years. We've been preaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way it's changed our lives. And again, basically, anyone that comes in to the local church, denouncing that gospel and denouncing the way people's lives have been changed by it, you know, these people are, are to not have an audience. That's basically what Paul's saying here because we're trying to protect that which is healthy. And I hope, again, that little synopsis helps you to know where we're at this morning. We're not mean and harsh and cool people uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but there's sometimes those who come along who can be that way and disrupt unity. And Paul's saying, no, let's maintain health here, right? Titus chapter 3, and let's look at verse 9. He uses the same language here to this church. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. Understand, you know, just kind of underline that word, disputes about the law. That's going to come up back in our Romans text in a moment. For they are unprofitable and what? Worthless. Reject a factitious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Again, strong language, but we're not talking about something that we're doing all the time. From time to time, when it's necessary, in order to protect the health that God's given us, that has to be done. Okay? Just like, again, you would protect your home from an uninvited middle-of-the-night intruder. Okay? That makes sense, right? right? So it makes sense for God's people to do this in a spiritual way with the family of God. Okay? Go back to Romans 16 with me if you'd like. It goes on to ex explain, it says, for such men are slaves of their own appetites. The word slave here just simply means someone who's dominated or controlled by something or someone else. Paul uses the same Greek word in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6 when he describes our pre-salvation lifestyle as being slaves to sin. 
slaves to sin. We're dominated by something or someone. Someone who knows Christ as their Savior and is walking with Him. We're dominated by God. Right? Governed by His Spirit. Taught by His Word, the Bible. Okay? But these people are certainly dominated by something or someone else. They're slaves to their own appetites here. Now, the word appetites here is used in multiple texts in the New Testament. And often Paul uses this word when describing religious appetite. Religious appetite. Now, I want to stay true to the text. I think when you study this phrase out among other writers and authors who have written about this text, uh, you might find some varying um, interpretations of this particular phrase. And basically what you might find out there is this. These are people who are unable to govern any of their passions, <laughs> their temper, their, their lust right? Their greed. They're just basically unable to govern themselves. I think if we're going to stay honest with the context, immediate chapter and book context of Romans, I think this is in reference to what we read in Titus 3, and Paul also addresses it in the book of Ephesians. I really believe that these people are slave to their appetites. It's religious appetite. I think these are unsaved religious people who are having a hard time letting go of everything that was formerly religious that they enjoyed and lived in their unsaved state. And certainly, what we know from Romans 14 and 15, there were the strong and the weak, right? Those, both of those were saved people. They were growing in Christ's likeness. And Paul said you need to receive those who are weak if you're strong and receive those if you're strong and they're weak. But what he's saying here is don't receive these people, what? Keep your eye on them and make sure they're alone for the protection of the flock. So in Romans 14 and 15, even though the weak may have been people, that were struggling still because they had been reared in Mosaism in Jewish history, in Jewish religion, struggling with still hanging on to a few aspects of that religion, uh, even though they're growing in Christ, those are the weak. But, but these people have never been born again by the time we get to Romans 16, the people he's discussing here. These people were dominated by Jewish dietary law. In other words, their appetites, their physical appetites were for that which was completely restrictive in the Jewish dietary code. And doggone it, they were going to get their way because only eating this food, as Moses described it in his law, is God's will. And I'm going to make sure that everybody knows that. They're not weak. They're unbelieving. Okay? See the difference? They're dominated by that which they were religiously held to all their life. 
But what makes them dangerous again is, like we said earlier, they've already been introduced to Christ and they know the gospel now. And they've rejected it in favor of still saying this. Okay? So, they're dominated by. They, Luo and Nida says they, they, they just do whatever their, their religious desires told them to do. In whatever way they wanted to do it. I put down here as a paraphrase to what these authors said. They had no scriptural filter. In other words, they can't really take the Bible and sit down and, and graciously explain their position. Right? They know enough of the Bible to make them dangerous. <laughs> and they really can't really use the Bible to support their position. So they've got to stick to part of the Bible and pound their fist on the part of the Bible, not understanding the whole of the Bible. And they just don't do it in a very gracious way and they seek to divide. Religious zealots have, a zealots have a tendency to be quite polished and at times quite pushy. They present to God's people terminal ultimatums and they're often made by merely religious legalistic souls when they have never understood the true grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because it says here these folks are not of the Lord Jesus Christ. This qualifier clearly indicates that these souls that are to be watched are most likely not born again people, though they may talk the language well. But they're governed by their appetites. It goes on to explain here by their smooth and flattering speech. Their speech here is smooth, it's eloquent and attractive speech involving pleasing rhetorical devices. They're flattering with their words. They'll talk you up real, real high, and the next moment, they'll tear you apart. By their attractive words and flattering talk, they deceive the minds of the naive. The naive. They'll tell you that you're wonderful when they really don't think you are. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They use flattering speech to mislead the minds of the weak in the church or the newborn babes in the church. They're unsuspecting. They influence the unsuspecting of their naive. It's really interesting here, if you study this word out, unsuspecting in this culture, it goes all the way, all the way down to the, the plain explanation, which is this, uh, the minds of people who do not ever expect there to be untruth in a body of truth, that's the people they go after. Right? So those people who are just enjoying health that don't understand their responsibility to protect health, they'll go after those people and they'll get an audience. And the audience that they get have just self-defined themselves as unhealthy Christians. In healthy churches, souls who seek to divide 
and disrupt unity are rare. And even here, Paul is just telling them, hey, look, just beware, because when we get to the realization of protection, by the time we get to verse 17, or excuse me, verse 19, what does he say? For the report of your obedience has reached to who? To all. This is a healthy church. Cross-reference in the margin of your Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 here. Paul gave the same compliment to the Thessalonian church. From them sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Thessalonica, but Achaia and Macedonia and the regions beyond. They were a healthy church. So the realization of protection, how do you know that you're realizing a protected environment? Well, this is it. Your testimony at Grace Church of Mentor has a, has a great influence in our town, and in our region, in our state, in our country, and in our world. And we've talked about that over and over. Your obedience has reached to all. In other words, your acceptance of the gospel and how that changed your life to live according to the gospel, many, many people know about. So Paul says there, therefore I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And that's a phrase a lot of us that have known the Bible for a long time have discussed together. A lot of times out of its context. Within its context, Understanding that which is good and innocent or ignorant, not knowing much about what is evil, think about that in relationship to religiosity. Someone who's truly born again that's growing in a healthy body that used to be in religion, when they trust Christ, they do walk away from that religion. Right? And they really remember a lot of what that religion taught them, but that religion did not teach them how to be born again and how to trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so when they finally found Jesus Christ and him alone and the sufficiency of faith in him alone and his word alone, and they look back at that religion, all they can think about is, wow, I really love the people there, but I do not love what I was taught there, and I am going to walk away from everything that was there, and I'm walking this way. Hold to that which is good. And in the context, be innocent concerning evil. The less you know about the evil of mere religiosity, the better you are. Right? What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world, Jesus said, but lose his own soul? There's a lot of people in the name of religion all over the world, they're going to lose their soul because they held on to the religious without looking at Christ. And Christ alone. I'm trying, to be in a, I'm trying to be honest with the immediate context. With the book context. Now I think generally this principle is true. The less we know about sin, the better. Right? You know, knowledge of all things is not power, right? Knowledge of that which is wicked does not make us powerful. But within our context, certainly more and more knowledge and holding on to the knowledge of mere religiosity without the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, he says, no, that's done. That's done. Let's walk forward now and continue on in health. So there's a personal reminder here in verse 19. Keep letting your obedience be a testimony. 
Keep allowing that to bring about joy, not in my heart, but in the joy in your hearts. Cross-reference there in relationship to Paul's joy, there in verse 19, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the whole chapter, particularly in, the, in, the, in that chapter, verses 6 to 10, Paul said the faith and the obedience of the Thessalonian church caused great joy in his life, and that also gave him a, a, a reason to get up on Monday morning and keep serving the Lord. Keep faithful, keep growing, keep obedient, keep governed by the Spirit. Keep allowing your testimony to grow. Keep being a, a, an agent of joy for individuals and for the company of God people, God's people. Keep being ignorant concerning evil and wise concerning that which is the gospel and the content of the gospel and the way that that gospel's changed your lives, right? Chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Religious zealots love to, after they make professions of faith, but they never were born again, they love to go back and explore unbelief. They tamper with unbelief. They play around with the evil of religious unbelief and they flirt with it and they secretly sometimes live in it as well. And he's saying, just be careful. Just be careful of these people. It says here, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And all Paul's saying there, some people believe this is in reference to Genesis 3.15. But all, all Paul is saying there is, you know what, keep fighting, uh, keep fighting the good fight because the fight's already been won. Jesus has already fought the battle and won it for eternity. Amen. For now, take his grace and continue to fight well. And, and part of the fight is just protecting each other. That's all from, from these kinds of people. You know what verses 20 to 23 is, folks? It's the realization of the eternal value of the spiritually mature in the church as we close. There's several realizations here as we understand the realization of protection. There's a realization of a personal reminder. There's a realization of the joy that comes from obedience. There's a realization of discernment between that which is good and evil. And there's a realization here that the spiritually mature people in the church are really the ones to be looked to for the ultimate protection of the church. What's different about this list of names that we read earlier compared to the 27 names we read the beginning part of chapter 16? You go down through these names on your own. Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sopater, Tertius, Gaius, Erastus, and Quartus. I'm not going to do with these people like we did in detail with the 27 names earlier in chapter 16, but I will tell you something about these people they're all in Christ, they're all in the Lord, but they've been in the Lord the longest. They've been in the Lord and grown in Him, not for weeks, months, years, but decades. And I find it very interesting here under this little section at the end of Romans about how the church protects herself, that we find protection from those who have been climbing the Bible mountain the longest. Right? And they've developed that spiritual muscle over time. When new people come into the local church, 
and they blend in quickly, but ultimately quickly also have issues with some of the most mature people in the church. My issue is not with the mature people in the church, all right? My radar goes up for the people who are trying to divide the unity of those who have been there for years. And it's not just because those who have been there for years are good old boys, or they're just part of some type of religious club, and we know how to protect ourselves. No, these are people that are in Christ, they've been growing according to the word, they've been faithful disciple makers, they're, they're, they're toughing it out with good faithfulness according to the word of God, they've maintained a great spirit-filled disposition, they've maintained unity, all to the, to the growth of God's people and the winning of people in our community that need Christ, and they can't be all that bad this soon just because a newbie says they are. Okay? That's why Paul gives us these names. Think about some of them that are more familiar to you. Think about what Paul says about Timothy in Philippians chapter 2. Write that next to Timothy's name. Study out on your own time. Philippians chapter 2 and the end of the chapter there. Think about Jason here who from the first day Paul came to Thessalonica in Acts 17, when he's persecuted out of the synagogue, Jason opens up his home next to the church, and Thessalonica ends up being the most persecuted church in New Testament history. But Jason now has endured through that persecution for years, and Paul still says, Jason sends his greetings to you. Remember what the text said, all these people are telling Paul, please greet the faithful in Rome. Paul's saying in the 27 names earlier, you greet these people for me. These people are saying, Paul, you please greet the church of Rome for me. These have been seasoned vets in the local church. Protection, great protection is, is found there. Study the life of Gaius on your own and how God used this man to open up his home in hospitality for the great protection of God's persecuted people under the protection of the gospel and the unity of gospel dissemination throughout all of Asia and Asia Minor. These are seasoned vets. I don't have time to develop this morning, because I'm going to close now, the value of the, the, the most mature in the church. But I'll tell you, I'm only 50, okay? And Titus 2 tells me that the mature in the church are typically 60 years old and older. And so when I really want to know how to protect the church, if those people are walking with the Lord and they've done so for a long time, those are the people that I'll go to as part of my uh, opportunity and um, responsibility to, to protect the church. And I'll want them to teach me from the word how to do so. I read a lot of authors on chapter 16, probably more on chapter 16 than the previous 15 chapters. Because when you're given a lot of names, you just really got to know why. <laughs> and the preponderance of the authors are very, very clear in the mentioning of these final handful of names, and these are the people. These are the people that have been tested the longest, right? That know what it means to protect the church. And the principle drawn from this is simply that let, let, let maturity protect. Let maturity protect. 
Okay? 1 John 2, the Apostle John said there's going to be little ones, there's going to be children, there's going to be young men, and there's going to be spiritual fathers. In the church, there's always going to be different spiritual age levels. And the mature are the ones to be followed. Paul says something similar in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. There's going to be the unruly, there's going to be the weak, and there's going to be the strong. He says there be patient with all of them, but thank God for the strong. God's given us a lot of really good things here, folks. And it's God who's given them to us. I haven't been your pastor for all that long compared to some pastors. But I'll tell you what, the more you realize that it's God doing something here, right, just to roll down my window here, the more this pastor wants to protect what God's doing here. So anything that's, that's antithetical to what God's doing here, my heart is to address and to address quickly. Okay? So that we can protect. Right disposition, right position, always with these realizations among us. Okay? And God would ask all of us to do the same while we're governed by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that You've given us these simple admonitions here this morning to maintenance that health which you've given to us. And man doesn't build his church, God builds his church. And, and um, we all know that the wicked one doesn't like any church to know the gospel, let alone be healthy in the gospel. And, and I would pray, Lord, this morning for me and for these folks that we would continue to take uh, these words of encouragement here in Romans 16 and apply them to our lives individually and corporately. That we'll always maintain a godly disposition and a godly position and always realize these things as a result as we see you continue to do your work among us and in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.